And welcome to Pints in Politics. We are on our 19th program of 2019, and this is the Halloween edition. Pints in Politics is a bi-weekly discussion program of all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, uh, CFFF in Peterborough, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name's Bill Templeman. We're on every second uh, Thursday at 7 until December 12th. At the end of this program, I'll give out our podcast site and social media contact info. Joining me tonight in the studio is our politics panel to look back at the election that was. We have, first of all, a property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio, uh, activist and campaign manager, now retired, <laughs> Lauren Hunter. Or uh, now. Trent University political science student and former municipal council candidate Zach Hatton former mayor of Peterborough and Peterborough This Week journalist Sylvia Sutherland, writer and Trent lecturer and resident of Andrew Shear's riding. Former I resident. just... Former resident. Former resident. Yes, let, let's... Uh, Jeanette Plantana and writer and math teacher Tim Etherington. Welcome all and thank you on a rainy and a bleak Halloween night. So, the dust is finally settling on the federal election, although the campaigning seems to be going on, on continuing on social media. Two days after the election, Bob Ray tweeted, Welcome to the permanent campaign. All politics, all the time, in response to someone's tweet uh, against Sheer being still in campaign mode. So, before we dive into all the numbers and begin our uh, our vivisection of what, what happened... Uh, what do we conclude about the messages coming out of this election, more or less on a macro level, if you will, the 30,000-foot level? What did voters say to their political parties and to the country? And is there any evidence that our political leaders across the political spectrum are listening? Okay. Oh. Uh, Tim is jumping in. I'll jump in. I, I think well, one message is that Canadians are actually kind of happy with the state of the country. I don't mean they're joyous or exuberant, but if you were to f- look at through the lens merely of social media and online commentary, you would think that everybody is angry, everybody hates everything. I mean, there is a, a great deal of outrage that has become the sort of common way we connect with one another. But when you look at the results of the election, y- you have to conclude that despite headwinds and incredibly self-inflicted gaffes on the part of, of the Trudeau liberals, that part of their strength and part of their success was that people generally liked the direction of the country. They liked how things were going. They can find many, many things to be upset about, but they weren't prepared to throw away the government and start all over again. Sylvia? I think uh, I wouldn't be quite that optimistic about the result. Uh, I think they just didn't. It was maybe the best of a bad lot. I don't think they were particularly happy with the state of the country, but they were happier. I think they thought they'd be happier with it than they would be with any of the alternatives. I I, I, I don't think there's a lot of dancing in the streets. And, uh, no, I think actually it's a rather uh, – it was a dispiriting election, and I think the results reflect that. Jeanette? In response to Sylvia and to Tim – I want to caution against saying Canada when we mean Upper Canada. We are in Ontario and uh, west of uh, Lake of the Woods. It's blue. Nobody there is happy until the mountains. But it's a different. It's a different land out there. 
And as the person who did, who was born and grew up in Andrew Shear's writing, it's still very present to me that that's not a, a, a known territory. And that was obvious to me in the election that, um, People who picked Andrew Scheer had no idea how he would play in Ontario and Quebec. And um, people here in this part of Canada, I don't think, understand um, the culture there. It's not just disenfranchisement. It's barely a shared history. Oh, okay. I think it was a case of, you know, the devil you know is better than the one you don't. I think what sunk the... Andrew Scheer's campaign were social policies. I think that if the conservatives step up their game on their social policies, there probably could have been a little bit better run for for government. But I think that's where they fell short on this election. And I think, especially in Ontario, on the provincial level, we've had a big belly full of Doug Ford and his government. And I'm not sure that we were ready to take the risk on that on a federal level. I think there is something in addition to that, too. I think it was Andrew Scheer himself. Absolutely. Well, he, right. yeah, yep. he, I mean, he was not a likable-ish person. Unless you're from the West, he is likable there. Andrew Shear is likable in the West, and that's really hard to understand here. <laughs> no, we have to, I'm serious. He's, yeah. he's lauded. He's a leader. He is who people look up to. I, I, you know, I can talk more about that, but I, I guess I'm here to underscore the differences. Ontario voted because they wanted to keep Doug Ford's kind of conservatives out. And the prairies were blue because they really like what Doug and Jason, Andy and Jason are loved out there. Just okay. one thing. I just want to be clear when we talk about the West, though, because this has been thrown around all the time about the West. It's not the West, and you were correct there. It's the prairies, and it is significant. And I'm not dismissing anything you're saying about how you know we're, we're in a very different context there. Um, however, there has been an overemphasis on this idea that every other party needs to apologize when you look at what happened in the West. It isn't the West. It's the prairies until the mountains. The Conservatives won a couple suburban seats outside of Vancouver. Otherwise, they were shut out completely once you got over the mountains. It was it was NDP and Green, and then around Vancouver, it was Liberal. And at the same time, it's not just Ontario. You know, the Liberals, once again, dominated the Maritimes. They won more seats in the bloc in Quebec. And I'm not here to wave the flag and champion the Liberals. I just think that the discourse in the last week has kind of missed the point a little bit. We spent a lot of time talking about the Conservatives winning seats that they always win. They always sweep Saskatchewan, Alberta. They they got a couple more seats this time than they traditionally did, but they basically won the seats they usually win. Zach, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that what I was going to say to Tim's point, he said, was that the Conservatives won the seats that they were supposed to win, and almost none that they weren't or were close in. Look at Peterborough Kawartha. Mike Skinner only picked up 610 more votes than he had in 2015. So the the prairies always go blue, and the Maritimes and Quebec and Ontario sent a pretty clear message to Andrew Scheer that they didn't really want to play that game. Uh, I mean, half of the Liberal caucus is from Ontario, or pretty close to, so... I think the Ford factor did play a little bit in in Ontario, but no, the Conservatives needed to win seats that they were very close in and that they weren't supposed to win in order for 
uh, Andrew Scheer to consider this campaign a success. And I think that'll play out come leadership convention. They took one, one seat in Saskatchewan that we may miss. Yeah. Very much right. so. Lauren. Just on your back to your original question, what message did voters send mm-hmm. to the parties? And I think the message that leaders were sending was a regionalized message, mm-hmm. right? That they were delivering different packages to different parts of the country and speaking to them in different ways. And I think voters reflected that back to party leaders to say, okay, well, that message that you were selling in the prairies didn't sell at all. That message you were selling in Atlantic Canada did sell. So it, you know, it's a bit of chicken in the egg here. Who goes first? And I think mm-hmm. that is part of the conversation right now, too, about leadership and how we uh, deal with some of these uh, divisions that we're seeing. They're not new divisions. You know, in 2011, 63% of Albertans voted for the Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. So this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, but voters reflected back what they heard from leaders, and leaders gave to voters what they felt voters were looking for. Sure. Now, we, we were talking about uh, Andrew Scheer. Let's get to the party leaders. Who's vulnerable? And if the law knives are out, who's likely to be sacked? I mean, what are we Andrew to Scheer. make? Yeah, what are we to make of Peter McKay's uh, recent pronouncement regarding uh, uh, Andrew Shear's performance? Uh, well, what, uh, what was it? Missing a goal on a breakaway? Was yes, a, a, yes, I'm missing I mean, the net. And 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 Peter McKay was saying today, well, no, 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 I'm not going. I'm not mounting. I'm not seeking the leadership. Like, yeah, right. He's not <laughs> seeking the leadership. But uh, Shear, I. I think no. I, I think Shears and leadership is in deep trouble, and uh, I think and Elizabeth May has indicated that she'd like to be speaker. I think she's maybe realizes she has done what she can do as leader of the Green Party, and she probably would make a fine speaker. And since they don't have party status, she in fact is technically eligible as leader of the Green to become speaker. I would hope, I would think that Mr. Singh is okay. He came on very well uh, in the in the later latter weeks of the campaign, and I am. I think. I think actually the uh, the question is out on Justin Trudeau. Um, we'll see how he can work uh, a minority government. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't uh, guarantee his. Uh, yeah, just to add to that, you're absolutely right about Singh. Singh came out of this the strongest of any leader. There's no doubt about it. And the NDP's results were, you know, they've, they've been going down in seats and vote count every election. But I think had Singh not connected so well with the population, the NDP would have faced a, a very dire night that night. So despite the results, I, I think Singh does have, uh, it's legitimate for him to feel somewhat victorious despite the results. Um, and Elizabeth May has actually said she's not going to run in the next election. She is. She is. Yeah, she has said that. And so, okay. um, now, whether she would get elected speaker is a whole other issue we won't get into. And you're right, Sheer. I, I, I do think, though, that Justin Trudeau is damaged. And I've said before that, you know, this election created scars on his legacy. They're never going to go away. You know, the bloom is off the rose. And he has an opportunity. We'll see if he meets this opportunity to actually be much more detailed policy and uh, uh, focused, uh, far less preening and in, 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 in sort of cosplay that, that dominated so much of his first term. But he is strong. You know, he did win another election, and mm-hmm. he came 13 seats short of a majority. And I really don't want to be the person trying to say the Liberals are 
triumphant and everything, but there has been a narrative after this election that really doesn't notice that he came 13th seat short and if it had not been basically for Bill 21 in Quebec, he would have won a second majority, which is a very difficult thing to do. And so despite all of this, and this is my first comment, despite all of this, the Liberals actually did rather well. Yeah, but it's going to depend to some extent how he does in managing a minority government. They can be successful with the right players and the right approach, but he hasn't even as of yesterday spoken to Singh yet. I just want to say, Tim, I mean, you don't have to stop. <laughs> the liberal love you want to, that'd be just, that'd be, that's great. That's great. Um, I, I want to say, I think that, uh, in terms of how Trudeau is going to deal with a minority, I actually am, I'm given a lot of hope by the fact that they're not actually going to announce and swear in a cabinet until November 20th, because I am hopeful that that means that they are taking stock and they're taking real stock at, yes, it was only 13 seats shy of a majority, but there is no such thing as a strong minority. If it is a minority government, it is a minority government. And that means that it can fall unless it's got support of, at least in this case, only one other party in the House, um, an official party. Um, But, you know, it could still fall at any time. So I'm really hoping that they're spending that time in some deep thinking and reflection about what they're going to do moving forward and how they're going to manage that. Uh, And in terms of the leadership question for Scheer, um, just reflect back to what Jenny was talking about in terms of social policy. I think the trap that the Conservatives seem to be walking into uh, is one where it is solely about the leader and the thought that if perhaps if we had a better leader, a different leader, that the next election, you know, is ours to win and we'll be fine without actually looking at some of the other problems that they had, both on the social policy side. But I think also there's been a lot of conversation about the ground game uh, and about the fact that the conservatives used to just mop the floor with everybody else when it came to voter identification and get out the vote. And that doesn't seem to be what happened this time that they thought they had a better ground game than they actually did in places like the 905, in places like Peterborough Kawartha, where that smaller margin uh, meant that that field work actually made quite a difference. Sure. Jenny. Just uh, Sylvia was mentioning Peter McKay, and my husband sent us an article here that he <laughs> from the National Post where it says, after blistering critique, Peter McKay denies he wants Andrew Shear's job. I haven't read the article, but apparently he refers to something as a stinking albatross in it. I don't know if that's like Shear himself or the actual whole party or what. But it doesn't sound like maybe Peter's that interested in stepping up. It was the social policies that uh, were the, the albatross, specifically his refusal to to sort of uh, say his personal position on same-sex marriage and, you know, the fact that he You're is right. pro-life. And that's what was hanging right. over his head. Zach, did you I just think for a party that, that that's so was so against legalization of marijuana, probably shouldn't be quoting Coleridge. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's one leader that we haven't talked about who I think has the highest job security of all of them, and I think that's the leader of the third party, Francois Blanchet. Mm-hmm. And um, if you think back to 2017, we thought that the bloc wasn't yeah. even coming back with yeah. uh, how uh, Ms. Ouellette handled that. So uh, he had a great campaign, especially um, for a regional party like the bloc, getting third party status over the New Democrats. His job is so safe. Uh, at least for the next election. Uh, the problem with Shear is he lost his deputy leader. Hmm? No, the, the, there's a lot of, uh, and the social issues are a big thing, but Lisa Raitt was a huge loss for the yes. Conservative Party. Lisa was one of the conservatives that I could see eye to eye on with 
a lot of things. And maybe that's Adam Vancouver then. Adam ran a fantastic campaign in Milton, and it's changing riding demographics. But Lisa, I know she's been MP for 11 years. So something happened in Milton, and Kitchener-Conestoga with Harold Albrecht, who was even longer serving than Lisa Raid, I believe, uh, losing by a quote-unquote slim margin. I, I don't know what's going to come of that. The last I saw on CBC, they still hadn't updated from the last five polls at about 273 votes separating them. And then Elections Canada came out and said uh, Tim Lewis won by a slim margin. So those two Conservative MPs are big losses for Andrew Shear in this election, especially in Ontario. Okay, Sylvia, if you had to. Yeah, I, um, first of all, uh, I would recommend, by the way, given what Zach has just said, that everyone who can would read the column, uh, my column tonight, in Peterborough this week, which deals, in fact, with Lisa Rate and deals with the situation in Peterborough. Uh, and, and the column, well, I really, but the first thing I gather that, uh, that Vancouver then said when he beat Lisa Rate was, I have big shoes to fill. Now, that is grace, and that is what maybe our politics should look like more. Um, I, and maybe are we going to be talking later further about the leadership? Because with Peter McKay, remember, Peter McKay was the one who sold out the progressive conservative party uh, to uh, to the reform party. And there may be still some sensitivity around with the old PCs about what McKay did to them when he said he wasn't going to do it. So may, he might be wise to uh, think about not running for leader, perhaps. And I I want to come back to leadership and regionalism again and just note that you guys dismissed the West as they're blue and they've always been blue and they'll always be blue. You did it just... No, we actually call it the West. From the West, we call that the West. And we call British Columbia the coast. And people in Ontario don't know that. Like, they don't know what... uh, how. They don't know the nature of identity of Canadians, Canadian conservatives in the West, Canadian socialists who are really fiscally conservative from the West. In 1979, when Trudeau had a minority government, Ed Broadbent brought the most seats for the NDP ever, 29 or something. It's a huge sweep for the NDP. Um, and the Pekists were really, really, really robust. So that's 40 years ago, which actually isn't forever. And I'm not saying we ever have to learn anything from the past. I actually don't believe that's the case as much as it used to be because of the changes in technology. So if we're going to talk about a leader, you know, we can we can trash Sheer, which there isn't a conservative in the room here. I'm just noting. Um, we can trash Sheer, and I think he's worth trashing repeatedly. But he's a very, very familiar kind of prairie racist conservative. And if the conservatives had a racist from, or pardon me, uh, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave it at that. If the conservatives had a leader from Ontario or Quebec, do you think it would have been different? Because I think Andrew Scheer represents the West in a really profound way. That social conservatism is the West. Okay, Jenny. Sorry, I just want to say, I don't, really identify with any political party, which I think has become abundantly clear over the last few sure. weeks. But I can say that as far as um, a conservative go, I thought that Mike Skinner, like I thought he was kind of getting there with aligning with a few of my, like, 
that might be your perception, Jeanette, that he wasn't, but I... No, it's, it's, it's like, just a perception. It's from conversation. Right, and I've had conversations with him as well, and I do think, like, do I agree with everything he does and says? No, but I don't with Miriam or any other candidate that's out there. Like, you're not going to please 100% of the people 100% of the time, but I was glad to see that there. I maybe felt like there was a little bit of support for same-sex marriage from Mike Skinner or like I just felt like it was a little bit more progressive than maybe what we have seen in the past. Okay, I have to ask the another national leader, have we seen the last of uh, Maxime Bernier? What's going to happen oh, there? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what what is going to happen with that movement? Well, uh, hopefully, you know, it, 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 it's buried under, like, you know, <laughs> three miles of bedrock. and so. But the, the problem for Bernie isn't just that he has such an extreme position. It's that xenophobic nationalist populist strain in Quebec is being occupied right now, not just by the PPC on its radical fringe. It's also being occupied by the Bloc Québécois, because that was a move that uh, Blanchette pulled off during the election that, that that allowed them to be so successful is that he took that mantle. I mentioned it before. It was Bill 21. If you look at the very first French debate, there was only one leader, and he was very tentative about it, and it was Trudeau who actually spoke out against Bill 21. In the French language debate, Blanchette asked him point blank, uh, would you... Would you join a court challenge against Bill 21? And Trudeau said, I might. I'm not going to say no, because he acknowledged the roots of of uh, secularism in the Quiet Revolution and the effects that had, and what, you know, so the historical roots of that bill. But he said, I'm defending the Charter. I'm the Prime Minister. I might very well have to take this to court. And the Liberal support in Quebec plummeted after that. That's when the, the, the Bloc had their move. So... Part of Bernier's problem is that the Bloc Québécois has refashioned themselves not as a separatist party, but as a nationalist party. That's a very specific term in Quebec. Do you, is there, do you see the possibility of perhaps the right splitting off again? Yeah, I mean, you have, you have certainly there's still the remnants of the red Tory. There are certainly red Tories around. They have not voted conservative, I suspect, at least friends of mine, for several elections. Um, I'm just wondering if that alliance that uh, was formed when Mr. McKay decided to sell out um, uh, might, might split up. I think it's certainly possible. I think <laughs> that's as far as I go on <clears throat> making uh, projections. Uh, but I do think that the the possibility is very real in terms of how the party deals with the leadership question right now around Andrew Scheer, how the different camps uh, seem to be aligning. And again, I think, Sylvia, your point about Peter McKay having sold out the, the Red Tories and the PCs, I mean, folks don't forget that. No. Uh, those no. wounds uh, go deep, and many, I'm sure, would point to that as part of the problem that has happened for them right now um and so i think it is it is more than possible it's definitely something that could happen okay now if i could just ask in the last program i trotted out a long list of uh scandals and near scandals and just schmears uh, I, I got to 16 of them i mean the snc lavalin uh, blackface suit Shears dual citizenship, etc., etc. I, I won't go through the list. Uh, did any of them stick? Did any of them make a difference? Zach? I think they had an impact. I don't think any one stuck. I think each maybe put a little 
dent in the armor, and maybe part of that was why Trudeau lost his majority. But I don't think anybody went to the polls saying SNC. I don't think anybody went to the polls saying blackface. And I must say that I believe that Justin Trudeau handled blackface as well as he possibly could have. He came out and profusely apologized, and that doesn't make it okay. But that was very well handled, and there was no sweeping it under the rug. It was acknowledging that he did it. It was um, apologizing, and it was moving forward. So I think that the scandals definitely stuck, but not one stuck it was As pretty hard, so. Zach, to sweep it under the rug when the pictures were <laughs> were on. The, yeah. But I think the one thing that did, and I wasn't involved in the campaign, but from what I was hearing and what I've been reading, I think democratic reform and the, and the disappointment that that promise not being carried out, that probably has much effect as anything uh, on, as many things at least. Jeanette? Um, I think the people in this room are interested in politics, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> and I, I, I keep thinking about the voters and how yeah. they, in different regions, responded to the different um, or any or all of the scandals. Mm-hmm. I think um, none of those scandals had much impact at all. I'm disappointed to say that, but I think it's true. I don't think people um, who think of politics as something you do every four years for a popularity contest are terribly concerned with that when it um so they they don't think about character as much as scandals would suggest that they ought to think about character so the base for each party probably wasn't affected by any of those um and i i could talk endlessly about about the um what i call the aladdin face because I'm actually going to dissent again and say, to use that term, it's an Americanized term. We do not have a, a legacy of slavery, lynching, and Reconstruction and Jim Crow in Canada. The putting on that costume meant something different in Canada and, than, and to most Canadians than it did to those in this room. He dressed up like a cartoon character, and he looked like a fool. And it's beige face, it's brown face, it's Aladdin face. And I won't call call it blackface anymore than I'll say that, you know, impeaching Trump is like lynching him. I just think it's bad it's bad language and I or it's poor faith language and I also think voters didn't really respond to it like it was blackface in the US. It's a different situation. I can tell you what happened on the campaign trail when that hit uh, and the responses from people. You know, we monitored very closely what the canvassers and what the phone callers were hearing when they were out engaging with voters. And I have to say the number one response from folks, and, and this could also be a slice of who we were talking to, when we were talking to them, etc. But uh, at that point, we were reaching out pretty broadly beyond our sort of base of support and trying to push and find new voters and new supporters. Uh, and the overwhelming response was, 
you know, a variation of, you know, if I was held accountable for all the things that I did when I was 25, 29, whatever, enter an age here, when I dressed up as Pocahontas, something, something, insert other totally inappropriate things to have been doing and or whatnot, you know, I, I wouldn't, I would never hope to be held accountable for that. So the, <laughs> the reflection we got back was mostly people looking into themselves and saying, yeah, I've done some things that I'm ashamed of and reflecting that back on the prime minister, which was remarkable and certainly not the response I thought we were going to get when it all happened Mm. and still surprises me to that day. And I think is part of, at least in this community, I can't speak for others and how they felt it and heard it, but is part of the reason why that didn't seem to make a dent here in terms of support or we didn't feel Mm -hmm. that it did to us. Tim. It, I, I'm actually, yeah, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised it didn't have more impact than it did. Like I think, so you know, the proof is in the results. That I mean, you you can see what happened to the polls, and although the Liberals recovered from it, they never fully recovered from the blackface. He was on his way to majority at the time, and he probably would have won a majority except for that. So it, he did take a hit. His his image and his brand will be forever diminished because of it. And I don't think we can just say like people got over it and not, everyone is going to associate that is going to be part of his biography for the rest of his career. And that's part of his legacy for good. You know, that's just the way it is. He managed to survive the election for it. I do hope it has humbled him. I, you know, because if Trudeau has an issue, it's that his charm his his panache, his good looks, his name has always seemed to be something that he seems to lean on kind of heavily. And he is a good politician. He's a bright man. But he has at times got away with saying stuff that's a little too cutesy. You know, his trip to India was cringeworthy, you know, the way he was dressing. And I'll never forget him saying, you grow an economy from the heart outward in 2015. He's a person who has got away at times with his personal charm. And I hope that he, this does make him a bit more mature. I do want to say one quick thing about though, what you said about how he handled it. The time to handle it was two years ago when the scandal broke in Virginia. And mm. so this isn't important. To go back to what you say, Jeanette, about voters. Voters don't follow this stuff too closely. But as a, as a political observer, the absolute abject uh, stupidity of him not taking that opportunity two years ago when there was a controversy in the States and coming out then, Canadians would have been very, very forgiving. To wait, to have that time bomb ticking in your history was was was, uh, was crazy. He let that happen. Do you really think humble is in the Trudeau DNA? I'm going to take advantage of passing the microphone just to say, Tim, yes, I totally agree. Two years ago was the time. Um, I don't know when he ran for leader, when he won leader, when he ran for MP, before he ran for MP. Any of those times would have been great times. Jenny. I think the problem with um, Tim's analogy, and it's not that it's Tim's problem, is that with Trudeau, like, it's not 1970 whatever, and he's not his father. Like, he, he doesn't have that same charisma, and it's a different time. People, yes, like, it's not as cutesy as it yes. was 40, 40 years ago. As far right. as the scandals go, the reason why they didn't stick is, quite honestly, none of them were really that good. Yeah. Like, in the end, they were pretty thin. Like, they were very Canadian and very nice. <laughs> and But you know what I mean? Like, there just yeah. wasn't a lot of depth to any of them, and yep. that's why they didn't. Stick. You, yep. can't, you can't be any more than ca- Canadian than no. pretending you were an insurance <laughs> agent. <laughs> that really has to be the most Canadian now, of all. Now, I have to, have to ask, uh, Jeanette was talking about uh, voters. 
what can we conclude about voter turnout, the so-called popular vote? Voter turnout in the election just finished was uh, 65.9, according to Elections Canada. In 2015, it was 68.3 and 61.1 in 2011. From the late 50s to the early 90s, turnout was usually over 70%, with a high of 79% in 62. So is this low turnout a cause for concern? And if so, what to do? I was just going to throw in my last comment on the last question and in a response to Tim. If you ask my girlfriend, he's not as cute as he used to be in 2015. So he's lost a little bit like Obama did. He's gotten a little older, a little... Obama never lost. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and neither did Joe Biden. There you go. Uh, so turnout and popular vote are two separate things here, right? The overall turnout of the people who actually came out and cast a ballot, I think you've seen, we've seen in Western democracies, the turnout has been on, on a slide for many years. Uh, I'd be interested in returning to the conversation about mandatory voting. That was something that right. did come up in the package of electoral reform, and right. there was very little appetite for it across the country, and right. fair enough. But uh, I think as we see that continued slide, it should be something that we consider. It does work in other places like Australia. <laughs> What has happened in Australia? Is anyone uh, up to date? So, the, I mean, their turnout is much higher, but certainly that doesn't mean that it's 100%. There's still people right. who, you know, no matter the fine or whatnot, will not go and cast a ballot. Um, but they have, I think you haven't necessarily seen it, um, you know, favor a party over another. That just, it means more people are talking about it and engage with the process. Okay. Tim. I'm all for that. And I'm all for more people voting. I just want to point out statistically when you're talking, you said 68% and 65 when you're When you're dealing with a differential of under 3%, yep. that really isn't that different. That's basically the same turnout as slight difference in terms of with right. a growing population. So uh, what we have seen is an uptick in, in voter participation. And we've seen it actually in other uh, uh, elections as well. There has been, and is, is this, you know, the millennial vote or something? They're actually, election election participation is going up a little bit. It is not what it used to be that's that's true but i I don't think actually turnout was an issue in this election i think i was i think given what a what a really depressing campaign it was almost the same number of people voted yeah um i i actually feel it doesn't matter how i feel so i'll try to (laughs) i'll try to rephrase that i think elections used to be a time where people could come and express how they feel and that's no longer required so the desire to make connection and to uh, persuade and influence um, particularly through bonds of affection is probably uh, still the biggest driver only now that now it can be done more satisfactorily on the internet and i think that part of democracy is the public aspect of it Mm -hmm. and i think public life has changed um as well as private life of course because because Mm -hmm. of the internet but public life is um a smaller portion of our lives now and so i think um the the trick is going to be persuading people to be involved in public okay zach all the way across the room so there was a lot of talk especially around more my age group circles about uh, why advanced polls would be on Thanksgiving weekend. And that that was a thought that I had, but 
obviously I was far from being around in 1962. So were my parents. Um, however, <laughs> however, for our from, listening audience, there is one representative uh, of the born since 1990 in the room. <laughs> From everything I've gathered from my family, it has been that voting used to be a time when families would go together. They'd yes. bring everybody. I went to voting uh, as soon as I was born. Uh, the first election, I went to the ballot box. And uh, so that, that, I think, taught me a lot. It was a civic duty to go and vote. But I think more and more people don't feel that. So... It's unfortunate, but I don't believe we'll ever see a 79% voter turnout again because mm -hmm. it's not something that people necessarily do. And uh, my cousin voted for the first time ever, and that was exciting for him and for me because as someone as involved in politics as I consider myself, I don't know why I, anybody wouldn't vote. But uh, it's lost the family touch, so I think mm -hmm. it's losing the the meat okay lauren uh interestingly we looked back at uh advanced poll turnout this election versus the last one in peterborough kawartha and it has i mean it has steadily gone up um across the country um but here in peterborough kawartha in 2015 it was 26 percent of the vote went into the advanced polls and this time it was 30 so it, right. it is on the rise and in fact some of the conversations we had on thanksgiving weekend uh well we as a campaign family were trying to pull people out to vote was that actually families were you know kids were coming home from school like maybe they're in university somewhere else, and they were coming home, and they were all planning to go out together on Thanksgiving Monday. And the Friday and the Monday were the two busiest days at the polling station. So, it, you know, you would think that it's Thanksgiving and people don't want to have anything to do with it, but actually there might be something happening there with coming back to family sure. and going out and making that a family uh, experience. Jenny. And I think the idea of what constitutes a family is changing as well. Of course. I've said before, my daughter is away at school. Election day rolls around. Her and her roommates all went through the process of getting registered in the city that they live in. They all went together. They all voted. For what some of them, it was their first time voting. And then afterwards, they went out and had coffee together to celebrate. Like, it was an event for them. It was very interesting. It was five girls. They all voted for different parties for different reasons so they kind of turned it into an event which i which was nice to see i was really proud of them for mm. for taking the time to do that the the advanced polls should though uh, i think i mentioned last time that i received and maybe an anomaly i received one piece of literature before the special poll opened i voted at the special it's even easier there after the advanced polls were closed i received literature from the liberals and from the uh, conservatives, the NDP, we're out early. I think it really, I think, I'm not sure the campaigns are looking, well, Lauren would know better. But that timing seemed to me to be a little unfortunate, if the, if the literature was going to affect me at all. I'll just go ahead and respond. Uh, well, Sylvia, we probably didn't have you identified. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out, Possible. when we tend to do this all the time, and it's not just about elections, do it all the time, we look for precedents and we look back at a sort of pastime and compare a time. It's always the late 20th century. And we do that all the time in any historical analysis because that's the beginning of real, like real time video filmed recorded history. And so all of our historical precedents are there. You know, if you look at that time period, you're looking at a time when there had been huge efforts 
to enfranchise voters. And that's only a couple decades after women got the vote. It's within, and, and I'm not, I don't know the exact date, but within a decade or two that Indigenous population got the vote. So, of course, there's this groundswell of enthusiasm. You're talking about the absolute pinnacle of Western democracy from the 50s into, say, the 1970s. You know, we can go further back and talk about turnout. We can go back to, you know, the militia hanging out in front of the polls to scare off reform voters in 1836. I mean, how far back do we want to go? I just, I want to caution as we look at precedents, we always tend to look at the post-war boom era when things were rather easy in Western democracies. Okay, I just have to ask before we wind down here, uh, what about our candidates in Peterborough Cortha? Will we see the same roster in 2023? For example, will Mike Skinner, uh, Michael Skinner run again? What about Candace Shaw, Andrew McGregor? And will there be a People's Party for Alex Murphy to represent? Well, I think we've almost guaranteed that Mary Monsoff will be back yes, on the ballot yes. for re-election. She said in her speech, don't go too far. But... I don't believe Michael Skinner will be back on the ballot. I think this was a disappointing run for them. I think they thought that they were doing a lot better. Uh, actually, I took a cab on Election Day, and the taxi driver was talking. I guess he'd just driven uh, someone from the conservative campaign, and I'm not going to indulge anything, but they were quite confident on Election Day. And as I mentioned before, they'd only picked up 610 more votes. I mean, Miriam did lose some, but that's typical for an incumbent going in in a majority and coming out in a minority. Um, I think Andrew McGregor, of all of them, is the most likely to also return. I think his campaign was very well, especially around the university. I saw him more than I saw anybody else at the university. And if you look at where... Candace Shaw lost some support from Dave Nickel, and yes. Miriam lost some support from 2015. And that was eaten up mainly by Andrew McGregor, it, it appears. I mean, mm-hmm. some some of it could have gone to the Conservatives, and the Conservatives could have lost some. You never know. But looking at mm-hmm. the roster, I would say that Andrew McGregor and maybe Ken Ranney might return as candidates. Right. Now, McGregor and the Greens, uh, the vote more than doubled. Almost two, they were 3%, and uh, in 2015, there were 7% of the votes cast uh, two weeks ago. Uh, so they alone really climbed. Everyone else, let's leave PPC out of it, uh, went down. Uh, the NDP went down slightly. Uh, the Liberals went down a bit. Uh, the Conservatives went up, but as you say, only by 600 votes. Uh, so in terms of percentage, it was like under a percent. The um, Miriam is still very young, and I would not be surprised to see her back again. If I were Miriam and I was enjoying it as she, it's, she probably is most of the time, I, and I and I had done as well as she has done, I certainly would consider, who knows what goes on in your personal life, running again. As for the people in your cab, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, seriously, I don't know who they were, but if they were the campaign workers and that, you have to believe your person is going to win. You yes. really do. Yes. Now, the people in the position of campaign manager may know differently. I knew when I was a candidate here, I think it was provincially, that I knew from Toronto that I probably wasn't going to win it. But the campaign workers, you have to believe you're going to win. You really do. 
just yep. um, in terms of the survey of the candidates, uh, Candace Shaw did it say after the election that she intends on running again. Just the, I don't know yes. if she actually will, but she did actually make that announcement shortly after the election. Um, we it's four elections now. If you look at the last couple of municipal elections, or sorry, five elections, I guess the provincial election, two federal elections, candidates who either won or surprised people have always been underestimated. Monsef was underestimated in the first municipal yes. election. Terran was underestimated. Monsef's been underestimated twice. Sean Conway was underestimated. And that's because the electorate is actually different than the conventional wisdom in the city. And so the person in the cab where they were campaign workers, a lot of people thought Skinner was going to win or be close to it because the people they knew yes. were drifting towards the conservatives. But this is – Peterborough has become an urban riding. And if, we don't have time to go back into the fracturing of the country, but where the conservatives Conservatives really are shut out, except in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, uh, is in urban ridings. They're shut out of Vancouver, pretty much. They're shut out of Winnipeg. I mean, and, and Peterborough has become, you mentioned Kitchener. You look at the red around Kitchener, Waterloo, you look at the 905, it goes all the way to Durham now before you see a conservative. So we consistently underestimate young candidates, candidates of color, female candidates in this riding. And I think maybe this is the time we let that go and recognize that there is, I hate this term, but there is a silent majority of voters in this town that are progressive, that are quite open to voting for a young candidate. You know, you know what, as the microphone is being passed over, this, these conservatives have a tough time in an urban riding. The red Tories would not have as tough of you at all. I think a perfect example of a campaign party underestimating how election was going to turn out was the last mayoral election in Peterborough. Right. I mean, not only did the incumbent lose, but like it was like by like 97% type of thing. And I'm not <laughs> confident that, he, or whatever it was, I don't know, but. 70 odd, I Whatever. Think yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot. A lot. A lot. Yeah. I'm not sure that that campaign party saw that coming. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, just like to say, Lord. I mean, I'm happy for people to continue underestimating <laughs> some of those wonderful candidates that we have in Peterborough Court. Yeah. So about about uh, we were talking about candidates, like our local candidates, mm-hmm. right? So I just want to disclose that in 1979, I left what is now Andrew Shear's writing as part of that NDP sweep. Of, so that's how I moved. Ended up moving to. Uh, Upper Canada, and I worked on Parliament Hill, so, you know, Trudeau was Prime Minister. And since I moved to Peterborough 30 years ago, I've been waiting for a really good new Democrat candidate, and I feel like I'm still waiting. Walter Pittman was a really good new Democratic candidate. Were you here then? No. Do you mean mean locally, Jeanette, or locally? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Zach? Um, I just wanted to discuss like talk about because i forgot to earlier frankly (laughs) driving around peterborough it seemed and i know from past merriam campaigns that they don't do a lot of public signs it's mostly on private uh laneways and uh, michael skinner put a lot of public signs out and frankly i I've talked to a lot of people about the effects of signs recently, and um, to me, signs affect your neighbors because maybe you know them and they're like, oh, they're voting for candidate A. Maybe I'll vote for candidate A. And But more and more, I don't see public signs as being a factor, and I found that very interesting. I know we had a lot of signs in the county on private mm-hmm. property, but... 
within the city, it was the Tim Hortons on Monaghan. The right. Yeah. Were you not told those during the municipal election that the unspoken rule of etiquette in Peterborough is that your signs go on private property? Well, it's the only ones that mean anything. There, yes. yes. Signs don't vote. <laughs> and, 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 uh, just, just, yes, I, I totally agree. I hate signs on public property. I actually remember uh, Bennett's campaign swearing uh, to me personally in the 2014 municipal election. They wouldn't do it, and they did uh, when Miriam scared them. But it's not just public property. A lot of the conservative signs, you saw it for Bennett, and you see it for Skinner, and you saw it for Dave Smith. Those are actually like those strip malls, like the Tim Hortons, is probably the person who owns the land. Because I know this is a shock to people, but the developer developers in town tend to vote conservative. So, you know, I, I tend to, I'd like to go to the liquor, well, and chapters on Lansdowne. And there are massive amount of Mike Skinner signs there. And the developer who just actually got the approval from to to tear uh, dismantle Milltown and put in a, a development there is a huge conservative supporter. So those signs were actually on their property. They just look like they're on public property. So y- when you see those signs, I'm not trying to let them get off the hook. It's actually more sinister than that. These are large out-of-town developers who are putting a whole phalanx of conservative signs along their street. Sometimes large in-town developers. I had one election at which Aon was not supporting me. They may not have supported me, Pierre. Anyway, but this year, this time, they really weren't supporting me. And, and every large corner in Peterborough. Right. <laughs> Sorry. The Brookdale Plaza. During my municipal campaign, I got a call. I was out canvassing, I believe, from a lawyer in Peterborough that said, take them down or you will have a court date. I went into the Municipal Election Signs Act and found that my signs weren't because of the boulevard. Uh, but, yes, that, that's another big thing in uh, uh sense that there they are a lot of developers that are saying yes mike you can put them up or yes conservative frankly you can put them up yes. Miriam, keep them away <laughs> okay um there is a, an unfortunate uh, tendency to look back at this election and think about the issues that only if we had only had more debate about this on a national level with Barely three minutes left. It's insane to ask it, but I must spit it out anyway. Is the TMX pu- pipeline now a done deal? Short answers, please. Sure. Sure? I think so. Yes, and I think it was before the election. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think people didn't talk about the uh, international influence. Uh-oh. Yes. I don't know if it was ever on the table. I don't think. I'd say there was just as much domestic influence uh, in terms of social media and how things were playing in terms of like issues that weren't talked about. But there was lots of stuff being fomented here that was uh, the Buffalo Chronicle and fake news that came right from here in Canada, not necessarily just from the outside. But that was a, I, you were talking about issue that that wasn't uh, talked about in the campaign was right. foreign interference. And I'm yeah. saying there was foreign interference, yeah, but there was also a lot of domestic interference uh, by third party groups and others. OK, well. We are winding down here, so I must thank you very much for showing up on a very rainy night. So thanks to Jenny Lancio, Zach Hatton, Sylvia Sutherland, 
Jeanette Plantana, Tim Etherington, and Lauren Hunter for coming out on this spooky night. Uh, our, this has been our 19th program of 2019. In addition to the radio show, we're streamed live on the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. The podcast of tonight's show, Edition 71, will be uploaded by tomorrow night. Uh, we post on Twitter, at Bill Temp, and on Facebook, Pints and Politics Podcast. So please join us here at 92.7 FM on your dial when we, when we return in two weeks with a panel on environmental issues. The People uh, Alliance for Climate Action will be here. And if you miss us here on the radio, you can also you can always download the show as a podcast the next day at uh, the uh, website I just gave you, Pints and Politics, ptbopodcasters.ca. Any feedback, please comment on the podcast website I just mentioned or send me a note at uh, billtempleman at gmail.com. Until November 14th, this is Bill Templeman.